Well, good evening. It is good to be back with you. Um, I told you guys last Sunday a story about how I hurt my leg. And I said the story was the same that I had told my four-year-old neighbor, that Miss Kathy had been mean and she kicked me. And he believed it. And I told you guys that if it was good enough for him, maybe it'd be good enough for you. The great part about that was, like two of you even asked me if that story was true. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I guess that means it was believable. But Kathy asked me to set, set the story straight. I was climbing with my brother-in-law. And uh, I missed the last hold of a wall and took a fall that I'd taken about 10 other times before. I mean, it was not an unusually different circumstance. Over the last three weeks, I'd taken the same fall 10 times. For whatever reason, that time, I just landed and fell across my body and just twisted my ankle. So I don't know. I don't, first x-ray said it's not broken. We go back again tomorrow and look again, and we'll see what happens after that. It was a great time to go on vacation and sit on a houseboat for a week and be served. You know what I mean? And some of you, Daniel Boone, accused me of milking it. I can't walk, Daniel. I mean, you know, I can't walk. Of course somebody has to bring me my ice cream, you know, out on the deck. I mean, what do you expect, you know? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of James. That's where we're at. And tonight we're talking about God's will. I think uh, there's probably no more mysterious subject for the modern Christian than God's will. And part of that becomes out of some circumstantial things that have changed over the years. So, and, and, and let me see if I can make this make sense for us tonight. Uh, Christians, I think, really genuinely want to know the will of God. They desire to know the will of God. And they don't want to miss the will of God, I think, from a good place because most of the Christians that I know would say to you, like, I don't want to miss out on God's best for my life. I'm, I'm interested in God's best and him leading me down a path that I can be certain of would be a good thing. And I would concur with that. I mean, there's, there's not a thing in the world wrong with that. Uh, on the one hand, that's motivating, right? It's motivating to constantly want to know the will of God and to seek after the will of God. The flip side of that could be that it's a little bit crippling, no pun intended. It, it could be a little bit crippling because you're constantly maybe a little paralyzed by fear of missing out on what God's best is and how can I know what God's best is and how do we do that? And, and we're facing some challenges that didn't exist for believers in the past. And here's what I mean by that. Most people in times gone by didn't fret about where they were going to work. Right? I mean, that's a modern problem. And accessibility to education makes that a modern problem. So if you grew up a century ago with accessibility to education was very limited to the rich, young male, white male, maybe you would even say in this country, right? That excluded a whole lot of people who didn't have a choice about their vocation in life. You kind of, if you grew up on a farm, you were just going to be a farmer. Or you bought an apprentice somewhere, if your apprenticeship somewhere, if your parents could afford it. So knowing God's will for your life vocationally, it, it was just a little bit different than it is today. And choices, and the myriad of choices that we have, 
make things a little bit different in that regard. Well, let's talk about, for instance, marriage. In times gone by, no one prayed about who they were going to marry. You were given a wife. This is who you marry. This is just what it is. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't some big thing, and you didn't worry about where you were going to go on your honeymoon because you didn't go on one. You couldn't afford it. There, there, was, nothing, there was nowhere to go, you know? You, you can imagine when people from Knoxville start going to Gatlinburg, right? I mean, like, what a crazy idea that must have been, you know, to be able to do this. So, I mean, do you understand what we're saying, that there, there are certain things that were unavailable, and that complicates a little bit for us the way we think about God's will. The freedom available for work and marriage are certainly wonderful, but we start seeing God's will now as something very personal. So people begin to ask this question, God, who am I supposed to marry? It's different than here's who you're marrying. God, where do you want me to work? Where should I live? What house should I buy? I mean, all these things. And so we, we turn God's will into something a little bit mysterious. And I think the answer is maybe a little bit easier to discover than we might think because God's not hiding his will in these answers. And it may be that we're not asking the right questions. So if we flipped our mindset on God's will, and James helps us do this a little bit, it gives us a little bit of different understanding uh, because, you know, God has plans for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11. We could quote that. If you've been in church for a minute, you can quote that verse. You know, I know the plans I have for you. And that's comfort for me. I hope it's comfort for you. It really is comfort for me to know that it really doesn't matter if tomorrow I go to the doctor and he says... You're not going to fly because you're not going to this conference. Okay. So what? Or if he says, hey, you can go, go to the conference. Or, right, or you're going to have to have a surgery. I mean, there's a comfort level there. I know the plans I have for you. Okay, we can rest in that. I'm just going to put that out of the worry category. But if God has known us before we were born, numbers the hairs on our head, no, I mean, all those things then certainly he knows where we should work and who we should marry and where we should live and if we should buy a house or not and all that kind of stuff. So as we look at James chapter 4, let's look at verse 13 and see how he frames this for us. Because I think God's will is written for us in black and red in the pages of Scripture and he's asking us to do his will and prove his will more than he is discover his will. I wasn't going to say this, but can, can we stop before we look at this? I, I, I cut this, but I feel like it's important. God's will is not like geocaching. Do you know what that is? People that walk around with like garments, and if you've ever done it, like it's kind of cool, right? It's an adventure. You, you go to some website and there's a geocache site, and somebody has hidden something somewhere, and you get your garment out, and now you can do it on your phone or whatever, and you go hunt for this and find these clues and coordinates, and then you have to dig around and find this box that has like a pencil buried in it. And then you found the pencil. And what do you do with the pencil? You put it back, and you bury it for the next guy and cover it up, right? That's, that's not exactly... I, I don't think that's how God's will works for us. But I have certainly felt like God's will was like trying to find the needle in the haystack. That's just free. James 4. Verse 13, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. 
You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. There are a couple of definitions that R.C. Sproul, the famed theologian, gave when it came to talking about God's will. And he used two words. One was the preceptive, the precepts, the preceptive will of God. And the other was the dec, I'm going to say this wrong, it's the creative will of God. I almost said decorative, like your house. That would be the wrong will of God. <laughs> the, the creative will of God. So there are certain things that we learn from the precepts of the will of God. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, God's will doesn't say every person in here is to be married. But if you are going to be married, there's some precepts that apply cross-culturally to marriage. And when you live those out, you're living under the preceptive will of God, right? You know that you're doing the will of God. Much more important than trying to just discover some kind of abstract will of God. Then there are those, the, the will of God that has been decreed. And those things that have been decreed before eternity, you can't change it. There's no, there's, no, there's no wiggle room here. And, and we would say that God spoke the world into existence, and when he spoke the world into existence, you can't change it. It is what it is. Those things are, are what uh, theologians would call some of those immutable traits of God. They're immovable. They don't change. They're, they're not like uh, you and I. Have you ever had a hobby that you really, really liked for a season, and then you decided rock climbing was really a bad idea, right? And the, you were only going to do it as soon as you got the cast off, not before, right? I mean, I mean that, that might be something in your life that you've done. You know, there were things in your life that you did at one season of your life. You don't do them anymore. That's not how God operates. God's laws don't, he doesn't get tired of them. He doesn't look at them and go, ah, you know, that was maybe good in the first century, but in this century we're going to change things. You know, it, it's, it's a moving kind of thing. Well, that's a little bit different, but as we think about that, we understand that what James is dealing with here is the preceptive will of God. It's, it's those things you get some precepts and you start to apply them to your life. And what he needs, well, I think what he's trying to get us to see is that we need to be asking about the precepts from the word of God and how they guide our thinking. And that's really what comes out in this passage. What he's dealing with is people who commonly stated their plans and their ideas about what they were going to do and they did it without regard for God's will in their life. They, they had no concept of this. Their thought was, I want to go do this. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to barrel ahead and get after it. Now, I can't tell you how many believers I've met who could actually tell you their five-year plan. I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to get married. We want to be married for like two years. Then we want to have a kid, not more than one, maybe two. Certainly not three. Definitely not four. And then what we're going to do is we're going to move into our dream house. And they tell you all of these things as if they have control over all of it. Right? Now, what I'm not saying is that what we're not trying to do is make plans. We'll come back to that in a minute. But when we do that, what we're doing is we're not treating God like God. We're treating him like he's a magical fairy. And he, he, he kind of shows up in your life and sprinkles a little fairy dust on all of your little plans and makes them come to fruition. And that's not how it operates. And James is trying to say, don't charge ahead with the plans of your life and then just come back to God and say, well, I've made all these plans and God make it so. That's a little bit like a, a, 
I think, a faulty theology that we used to call name it and claim it. Well, that doesn't work. Have you named it and claimed it and it hasn't worked? If God speaks to you about something and says, in faith, I want you to claim it, that's very different, isn't it? Than me just saying, well, you know, I've determined that in my life, I'm going to be off crutches in two days. I'm going to have this in my bank account in three days. Next year, I'm going to be able to do this. This is my plan. That's not, that doesn't work. He says, when you do that, you're running ahead of things. You think about it. We're talking about the God of the universe who set the day of your birth and the day of your death. The day of your death is set. It's set. I used to listen to Jerry Falwell talk about the death threats that he received when he was on TV, a TV preacher. And Jerry Falwell had security. They, they, did, they took measures to make him safe. But he used to say this all the time. The man of God is not killable. You cannot assassinate him. There is no bullet that can strike him until God's ready to call him home. And then there's no security that can stop it. Is that how you live your life? I mean, the God of the universe knows your day of birth and day of death. I worry about my day of death all the time. I'm always wondering, what's it going to be like? How old am I going to be? What's going to finally get me? What, I mean, all those kinds of things. That's, it doesn't matter. The day of your death is set and how it's going to happen, it's set. That same God caused the world to flood. After he spoke it into being, he caused his son to be born of a virgin. He allowed his son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in our place, and then he called his son from the grave. That's not a magical fairy that puts dust on your plans and makes them all work out. It's different, isn't it? It's a mistake to plan our life and then simply ask God to make it happen. That's not the God we serve. If our lives really begin and end with him, then our plans have to begin and end with him too. Our, our plans have to start with him and they have to end with him. So in, instead of maybe asking all the time, who should I marry? The question might be, first, should I marry? God, is that in your will for me? Is that part of it? Maybe in, instead of asking how many children do I want, it should be, Lord, what do you want? Or instead of trying your hardest to figure out how to retire early, maybe the question should be, Lord, what do you want me to do with these years that you've given me? Am I finished at my job yet? Are you done with me there? Are you redirecting me somewhere else? It's totally fine, right? I mean, God does that. But so many times we set the goal of our lives, right? I just want to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I want to take my leisure and just sit back and do whatever I want to do. Well, if God hasn't given you marching orders that it's time for a redirect, you better be careful. A lot of people have have jumped off into that and messed themselves up. And James tells us the reason the planning isn't good for us, and it really has to do with what we know versus what God knows. If if you added up the collective wisdom in the room today, there's a lot. I mean, just if you would for a second, especially if you're on the front, look to the back of the room. Just kind of, I want you to take a minute and just look around, okay? When you look around this room, what you'll see are people who've been in 
all types of vocations, raised all types of children from all walks of life, from all countries around the world. There's a lot of wisdom in this room today, right? But that pales in comparison to the wisdom the Lord has. Because our, our wisdom is a generation, basically, in this room, right? It's a generation. And, and when you think about that, it's what God knows that we don't. And so it doesn't take us long to really realize that. Because of our humanity, we don't clearly see the present. We don't. We think we do, but we don't. We don't clearly see the future. You can't. You can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. The interesting part of that is what we think we see clearly is the past. But I'm not sure that we do. They always say hindsight's 2020. I'm not sure that that statement's correct. Because when you look back on your life, you're trying to look back on it and, and try to re-engineer all of the bad decisions you made and, and things. And there'd be some that are really clear. Like that was sin. I, I shouldn't have done that. But you're seeing things through the lens of your emotions and your thinking today and how you feel about things. I don't know that it's 2020. So what God knows is, is what we don't know. So look at how James describes it. He says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor, verse 14, that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. When you imagine your life tomorrow, what comes to mind? I mean, really. When I imagine... Our church. If I, if I was just to think about our church for a minute, I mean, I think about more people coming to know Christ and being baptized than we've ever seen before. That's what I think about. I think about, you know, new staff members that will come and shape our future and be part of what we're doing. I mean, I, that's the, all, all that's very exciting. I think about debt, being debt-free and, and starting a church planning catalytic movement that changes the city and the world. I mean, that's all great. That's all fine and well. What I generally don't think about are the setbacks that are going to happen. Because they're going to happen. Right? I mean, when you plan your life, how much margin do you leave in for when you mess up? <laughs> when you dream that dream, you don't. Right? You leave no margin for that. You leave no contingency for being sick. You leave no contingency for someone taking your money. I mean, you, you don't leave any of that. And, and what he's saying here is you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. If you had la asked me about the fall of 2018 last Saturday morning, I would have told you about a climbing trip I was planning for the fall. I had no idea that I'd be hoping I'd just get to walk this fall. You don't know what's around the bend. You can't possibly see it. If I could walk this fall and and run and, and, you know, or whatever. I mean, that'd be a win. Forget the trip. Let's just walk, right? I mean, do you see what happens in your life? You don't plan for the, I didn't plan for that setback. I didn't plan that trip and go, well, you know what? If I get hurt, I need to have like a six-week buffer. You don't do that. Because when you plan your future, all you see is this. We're on the up and up, baby. It's a graph that runs from the bottom left or in your case, the bottom left to the top right. Always going forward, and it just doesn't work that way. We don't know what tomorrow brings. So James gives us this picture to understand our own human frailty. And he describes it like a mist in the morning. I often think about, we were on this lake this past week, 
and you know, when you watch the mist rise up from the lake and then the sun comes and burns it off, it's beautiful while it lasts and then it's just gone. I mean, as quick as it's there, it's gone. And he starts to say like that. The life happens quickly. We're here for a little while, we're gone. All things being equal, we're told today that you could expect to live to be 80 years old. That's the average lifespan roughly of an American man and American woman. Well, I'm looking at that going, hmm, we've crossed over the halfway point. If that's true in my life, there are less days to live for sure than what we've had before. For some of you, you're close. <laughs> some of you are on borrowed time. You know, I mean, it just is what it is, right? According to the statistics. How do you live with that? How do you, how do you manage that? How do you put that through your brain? If you don't look at your life through human frailty and that God is wanting you to see it so clearly for what it is that you're on point and on purpose. I don't know of a, a greater example of that than what just happened this past week in our church because this past week we had some of our youngest on mission and some of our oldest on mission. Our senior adults and our students were in Maryland together working at one of our church plants. Now, if that doesn't show you what's important, when you see a senior adult on a mission trip, I mean, they could be doing a lot of things, right? But they're saying, hey, there's something here. Life is, is but a mist, and we don't know. It could change tomorrow for all of us. It's sobering for us, isn't it? When you really think about it, what it shouldn't cause us to do is dread. What it ought to cause us to do is go, all right, I may have tomorrow, I may not. What's really important? If I wake up tomorrow morning, what's important? What are those things that make the top of the list? What are those things that are going to last into eternity? And you start to ask that, well, it, it, it changes things, right? What are you truly doing with the time that you have? James is describing people who think they can dictate the future. And that mentality makes you an owner of time and of your life. But we're not. We're just stewards. Everything we have is passing through to someone else. The stuff, the money, but you know what? Our character and our influence too. Those are passing through to someone else. And if we're stewards of it, then that directs our paths. Proverbs tells us that we make the plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And if that's true, we look to him first. He's our primary consideration before we make any plans. It's important to know what James doesn't say. What he doesn't say is don't plan anything, cash out your retirement, and go sit and wait for God to come back. He doesn't say that. There's not a thing in the world wrong with making plans. But you notice that what he's talking about is you make plans in accordance with God's will. This is a perfect kind of correlation to what we've been studying about on Sunday mornings in the book of Joshua. And in fact, uh, Pastor John Phillips wrote an entire thing on how the book of James chapter 4 really is, is about, Josh, it, it, it goes back to Joshua, the entire book, because what you see is that when they made their plans relying on God and saying, is this what you want us to do? Shall we attack? Should we do this? They were successful, right? You remember we just studied the battle of Ai. Ah, we don't have to worry about this. Let's just go up here and do it. And they're routed by a few thousand people. 
Then we studied about how the Gibeonites show up and what they saw with their eyes made sense to their brain and they just said, well, you know, these people seem like they're nice guys and they came from a far country. They've got moldy bread for crying out loud. Let's make a treaty. These are good people. They make a treaty. When they followed the Lord and they relied on him, things worked out well. Well, if you think about it, we make plans that are based on asking God in prayer to direct our lives. You remember our threefold thing from Joshua a few weeks ago, right? How do I know if God is leading me to do something? How, how can I be sure about that? Is it prohibited in Scripture? Am I following the Scripture? If you answer, I'm not following the Scripture, or it's prohibited in the Scripture, that's a no-go, right? It's not right. Second thing, you pray about it. You begin asking God in prayer. I'm reading the scripture. I'm, I'm trusting you in this. I'm waiting for you to speak to me. Where are you leading me right now? And you, you discern that in prayer. Third thing, you get wise counselors around you. And, and you ask for wisdom. And you start to do that. And you start to make your plans. But if those plans don't include flexibility, then you're, you're really in trouble already. Because we need to include enough flexibility in what we're doing to allow God to absolutely change the course of our direction in our lives at a moment's notice. Because that's how he operates. Think about Jonah for a minute. When God comes to Jonah, we don't have any backstory there that says for months and months and months and months, God was working on Jonah and leading up to this and preparing him for something. It may have been, may not have been. But what we see is that God shows up and says, go to Nineveh, tell them this, because I'm going to destroy the city, go and preach. That was it. It was a course correction in a moment. Right? I mean, then... That God operates that way so many times in our lives. He shows up and says, I know you thought this was the plan. This is the plan. When you hold everything in your life like this, it hurts. When God starts going, give it back to me. It hurts. And so what he's saying is, let's have some flexibility. Now, we've done this in our own church. I want you, I want you to show you kind of how we try to model this with our our vision plan, I asked Nathan to put a slide up for you. When we approached the vision process for our church, we landed on some things you remember in the 90-day period. We said there were four things that we wanted to accomplish in 90 days, and they were a little more concrete. Start life groups, get people trained in C3, get people ready uh, to, to do global focus for our city, get people ready to give his story, my story, his story, and train them in that. 90 days, a little more concrete. Then we talked about in a year, we really wanted to have 50,000 gospel engagements. I was so encouraged this week. I got a text from one of our members who's a dental hygienist, and she said, you know what? This week, God used the sermon from last week, and I was just giving it to everybody that sat down in the chair. And that's great, right? Because when you go to the dentist, have you ever noticed? Like, you can't respond, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. You know, how do you feel about that? Uh-huh, you know, just, just, just lay there for a minute. I'll talk, you be quiet. Captive audience, right? Gospel engagements. But notice when we got to the one to three years, some of those things that we, we started talking about, we said that there was something different about these. We said that over three years, what we wanted to do is have 150,000 gospel engagements, if we could. We believe that the scripture clearly articulates that that's the mission of the church, is engaging people with the gospel. I mean, that's it, right? Now, I want, I want to be really clear about something for a second, and I want you to hear everything that I say as we run through this list of things. So, I mean, there are certain things that we do 
you realize they're not in the Bible telling you do it exactly this way. We do it because we want to. Like we have a choir and orchestra. We have a recreation ministry. Did you know that men's ministry is not in the Bible? Right? It's not. There's not a horseshoe tournament prescribed in the Bible. Why would we do it then? There's not women's ministry in the Bible. There, there's, some, there's some hints at it, right? When you read a Titus, there's some hints at it. But it doesn't say, hey, get a video projector and do a women's Bible study every fall, whether you need it or not. Just do it. It's not there. I mean, we do lots of things like that. But, but we can't lose sight of why we do all of those things. Why do we do a choir and orchestra? Why do we do preaching? Why do we do a horseshoe tournament? Why do we have a recreation ministry and events and all those things? It's to be on mission, right? It's not so we can have something to do and come away and go, this is really great for us. I thoroughly enjoyed that. This was great for me. I had a lot of fun. All of those things are servants to the mission of seeing people transformed with the gospel, right? That's why we go on mission trips. That's, I mean, all of those things make sense. But only in the context of what we're doing but, you know, maybe 150,000, maybe that isn't what God wants. Maybe he wants 100,000 and he'll be pleased with that. Maybe he wants 300,000. I don't know. That's where we landed, but it's flexible. The second thing we said is that we wanted to financially reposition the church. We want to accelerate our debt repayment. We really believe that God wants us to do more with our time than just pay off debt. We really believe that. We believe that the debt has served us. It's gotten us to exactly where we are today. And that's wonderful. But now it's time for us to attack it and to do something with it so that we can take that money and allocate it back to the mission. I mean, that, that's the purpose of paying off debt. It, it's to be good stewards and get ready for that, right? I mean, that, that's the purpose of what we're trying to do. I want you to just think for a minute about what it would be like if that wasn't hanging over us anymore. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine, and this is the number, roughly $660,000 a year going to the mission. That's sobering and exciting. It's exciting because you start thinking about what could you do with that? God, what, how many churches would you plant with that? Would we start a university somewhere? Would, would, we, would we go somewhere and start a medical clinic? Would we, what would we do with that, Lord? Where, where would you lead us to do it? But it's sobering too, right? Because that means we're all going to have to give more. And you say, well, how are you going to pay off that debt? I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. We're praying about it. That's fluid, it's flexible. We're seeking the Lord on that. You'll hear more about it, I believe, in the first of the years. We're evaluating all the options. Kind of that last thing you see there is the pipeline. And, and that's the thing that we got most of the questions about. If you remember, I kind of described it like this. We wanted in, in three years to see a pipeline that had kind of two nozzles out, two big ends going out of it. And one was that we wanted to raise up 500 guides. Our C3 strategy. You know, we want to connect everybody to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to connect them uh, to, to worship. We want to connect them uh, to a life group. Then we want them to commit to growing, to serving, to giving. Then we want them to be commissioned over here to know his story, my story, and go be part of Global Focus some way, somehow. And when they were done, we want them to be guides. And we said we wanted to raise up 500 guides on this end of the pipeline. And I got good news for you. The students are down there doing that right now. 
They're taking their grow class right now. We've already had over 200 people go through the first round of this. We've already had somebody bring someone, as a guide should, to the first grow class. Brought his friend to church and then said, you need to come to the grow class. I've connected you. You know, you're, you're a Christ follower. You're in life group. You're in worship. It's time to go to the grow class. I'm going with you. That's being a guide. Second side of that is that we believe that God wants us to reinvest in the next generation. We really believe that he wants us to raise up a generation of pastors, staff leaders, missionaries, church leaders. And so we said that we wanted to create a pipeline that would allow us to raise up some interns and provide internship opportunities, not to move chairs. I'm not interested in having an intern come in and move the chairs. We want people to come in and, and understand what it's like. Think, I mean, just think about this. Think about somebody who wanted to go in ministry and they got a week with Kirk and Tim. A week. Do you think that that would help a pastor? Do you think that that would help a, a youth pastor to, to know some things about a theology of worship that might set their course? Do you think it might be important for us to teach them how to handle finances with Pastor Todd? Do you think it might be important for them to understand how to build a budget as they go out? Do you think it might be important for them to spend time in children's ministry or in recreation learning about how we do events and why we do all that? Can you imagine that investment back and how that would pay dividends in people's lives? You say, well, how's that going to look? I don't know. We imagined that it would be a part-time thing for people that were finishing school and that we might pay them a part-time salary not that they're bringing a bunch of value added into us, but that this church was saying, we think this is important enough to put value back in them. Now, God can shape that how he wants. We've tried it a few times. We've talked to a few people to gauge their interests. First three or four people, it wasn't God's timing. It wasn't the right thing. Mentioned it recently to someone, and they're now praying about it. They may be our first intern ready to go out and do this. I mean, that, that's exciting things for us. But there's flexibility. We're praying about it. So let me ask you a question. What are you praying about right now? I mean, as you're planning out this week or this month or this year and you're imagining what God might do in your life and through your life, how are you praying about that? Where, where are you at with that? Is it just the big things? Where am I going to live? You know, kind of these. Or is it who can I be? How can I do the will of God? How can I prove the will of God? How can I serve you where I'm at right now? Well, it's funny. If we spend all of our time just kind of worrying about what I would call like the big things of our life, then we miss a lot. And Jesus spoke about this. I want you to look at the screen. Jesus said, For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor for your body as to what you'll put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? And who of you, by being worried, could add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was clothed, uh, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass 
of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. Will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So it's not that these things aren't important. Clothes are important. If you don't have them, they're, they're very important. If you're hungry, food's important. It becomes very important. But if you notice what verse 32 said, it said the Gentiles, and the words that it used said, eagerly seek all these things. And you may not have known this, but you know when Jesus is talking to this group of people and he uses the term the Gentiles do this, it wasn't a compliment. He wasn't saying, look at the Gentiles, great people over here. And what they do is, is the Gentiles were godless idolaters. And Jesus is saying, godless idolaters worry about stuff. Right? Don't be like them. Trust me to see that I'm going to carry you through all the way. Why? Well, because he knows the plans he has for us. And so Jesus says, look, while those things are important, if you'll seek to be righteous, if you'll seek to do the work of my kingdom, that stuff is going to come. It'll get there. Trust me. So I want you to take a moment and bow your heads, and I want you to think about whatever's pressing you right now. Let it come to the forefront of your mind. Whatever it is. And as you think about these things, I want you to give it to God. Whatever it is. It could be huge. It might just be that little thing that has been nagging you all week or month. And this is our prayer. That tomorrow morning we would wake up ready to seek righteousness and the kingdom and that our plans would include God if it's your will that's fine and if not okay lead me Father we commit our plans to you and we trust you we lay down those things that we're worried about or that we've been consumed by as if we were trying to seek your will like it was some mystery to be figured out on our own. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom. Give us purpose and let us build your kingdom and it's in your name we pray, amen.